Hi, my name is Tracy G and I'm an inner work coach, NLP trainer and podcaster extraordinaire. Passionate about equality and a world that is more diverse and inclusive, giving each and every one of us the opportunity to be the best version of ourselves. As a biracial woman, I've experienced my fair share of discrimination in the past and come out on top. We all know that discrimination and bias still exists in the world today, and it's not always easy to know what to do about it. This podcast, All One Inclusive, is about celebrating all diversity and being proud of all that you are. I chat with inspiring guests and my friends as we share stories from news sources and listeners from all over the world who have experienced some form of discrimination firsthand. The aim is for us to be able to discuss this issue more openly so it becomes better understood by all and provide tips about what you can do to make a difference. The world may have a lot of catching up to do, but if we can imagine a more equal world, we can create change step by step, ripple by ripple. Hello, happy hump day. Tracy, how are you? How can you never say happy hump day? Why do I never say happy hump day? No. Did you ever say it though before? Did I used to say it? Yes, yes. When I was looking after in the workplace, when I was um, checking in on all of my teams on a Wednesday, sometimes I'd say it depends on who the audience were, of course. But uh, yeah, I've never really got into that kind of habit actually. But um, yeah. Anyway, talking about habits, mm. I've just finished um, my new read or my current read should I say which is what I've been doing and uh, yeah I've picked up a book uh, Atomic Habits oh yeah my, it's supposed to be really good is it good or have you just started it uh, it's a book called Atomic Habits and I thought I'd mention it because obviously it's in your space Tracy in the coaching and training space have you come across Jane Lear? Atomic? I haven't read the book it's on my list I have I, a few people talk about that book so I know that it's a worthwhile read but when you work in this industry there's so many you know there's so many books and thought leaders and research articles that I just can't read everything but yeah I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it for sure when you're finished it's a really great book honestly I'm already starting to implement a lot of these strategies suggesting in the book and it really it spins everything around on the subject of motivation it's really good definitely yeah definitely recommend how about you what have you been up to well I I started that book so I'm talking about books uh, eight rules of love with uh, Jay's new book um, I got it from the library because I can't I cannot buy, keep buying books honestly and I think, you know, you inspired me as like, I can rent the books. So I started reading it, but I only had it for three weeks. And I can't read a book in three weeks. I just have too much. More, I'm more like, I could probably have read it in a month. That's probably more realistic given my, you know, activity, active life, unless I go on holiday or something. So I didn't finish it. And I had to bring it back because somebody reserved it. So that's a bit of a pain, but I'll just reserved it again. So when that book comes back, I can pick it up again. So that's what I'll do. 
So yeah. yeah, that's kind of a book I've been reading. I've also still been reading, you know, the Nigerian author fiction book that I bought. And what else have I been doing since we spoke? That's about it, other than work. I haven't been anywhere. But in Sydney the, last night, um, there was the launch of Vivid. So I actually took myself and um, I went along to the uh, Museum of Contemporary Art um, and was on their rooftop <gasps> and went there last night to see Sydney CBD light up. So that was oh, pretty special. That would have been amazing. It's a really good, completely free event. So um, I think you normally have to pay with the MCA, but um, for some reason, I think maybe after COVID, um, maybe we changed the rules, but it's the MCA rooftop bar and cafe, completely free. And so, yeah, took myself up there and it's really great because not many people know about it. And um, so it was probably, I was up probably there with about seven other people. Yeah. And so it was Yes, seven other people and watching all the crowds down below. So that was pretty special. That was pretty unique. So, yeah. Yeah, and I have to get yeah. myself out there. I usually go to Vivid. So um, at some point, the launch, I didn't know it was launching last night. Although I did actually, that's not true. I just forgot. I thought you'd be on one of those boats because you're normally on a boat on Vivid. Sometimes I go on a boat. Yeah, because it's nice way. I don't have to walk everywhere because it's quite... It's an extensive installation around the whole city. Um, and then there's pockets of it in some suburbs as well. Like if you go to Chatswood, they have a whole thing there as well. So this is, so actually we should explain, because, you know, not all our listeners are from Sydney or Australia. Oh, of course. So Vivid is, I guess, the simplest and most concise way to describe it is it's a light festival, a festival of lights. Yeah, I'd say it's a light installation, art light ex- installation exhibition where yeah. they use Sydney Harbour as a backdrop yeah. of these light installations. And a lot of them are quite interactive. Um, so it's great for the Instagram users. It's great for families to be out and to visit the Sydney CBD and see it in a different perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Attracts a lot of tourists and locals. It's like fun. Um, I'm just thinking of some examples. Like, for example, the Sydney Opera House will have a light artwork projected mm. on it and it will be changing. That's like pretty awesome to see. And then we also have like a town hall, the same thing. There's like famous artists' works um, like in a, with music playing. Mm. I've seen that a few years. And then there's just all these different unusual and interesting and incomprehensible things placed throughout the Botanical Gardens and Darling Harbour. So there's things everywhere. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because this week also we saw the president or sorry, the prime minister of India fly into town for two days. And um, part of his visit Anthony Albanese, who's the Australian Prime Minister, he decided to give the go-ahead to light up the Sydney Opera House with the Indian flag. And so that was, I didn't get to see that. So that's what I'm a little bit disappointed about myself for, is that only a few days ago, the Sydney Opera House was lit up with uh, the colours of, well, it actually had the Indian flag on there. There was a little bit of controversy because a few, few people said that, or a few crowds said that, the cost of it being lit up for somebody coming over for a visit for two days because apparently it costs I didn't know if you know this but every day it costs about 80,000 
Australian dollars to light up the opera house. But it's, so that's a little bit of useless information, which you now know. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know the, the facts and figures. I imagine that the money it brings in, the tourists and people going and paying for some of the paid things and for, you know, the food and whatever, I think, you know, that brings in more money, I hope, than what they spend. So I imagine, I hope so. So then it's an investment in the city as opposed to like a waste of money. And what an honour. I think it's a good idea to honour diplomats that we have alliances with that are visiting. I mean, who, what other country can really do that? I mean, not that I have opera houses. I, I love that, Tracy. Spoken like a true politician. Mm. But I think, I, I certainly think we should start to think about renewable energy, you know, a source for these events because like, you know, solar, that would be, a lot, that would be even better. I think that's yeah. the way forward, really. You reminded me of something, but I totally missed it and forgot it, but never mind. Let's just continue because we did have some really sad, actually really sad news this week. I was like, I, this happens every time. I was like doing a double take on the news because a celebrity is appearing. I'm like, oh, the first thought is, oh, are they coming to Australia? And then the next thought is, depending on what I'm hearing, is, oh, no, what's going on? And I'll, I'll hand it over to you. Yeah, so um, this week, yes, we received some sad news. It was about Tina Turner, uh, the queen of rock and roll, passing away at aged 83. So, yeah, it was a few days ago now. Uh, yeah, we all woke up to this news here in Australia. The legend herself, um, Tina Turner, like we all knew she was quite ill and she'd gone through a few health uh, concerns and a few health challenges over the past years but um, yeah it did come as a little bit of a shock so um, yeah and then I'm just reflecting on her life and what she represented it's a huge shock and a huge loss really so um, very sad very sad news I know um, I actually yeah I actually did take some time to basically just sit down and reflect about you know how much I respected Tina Turner really. I mean, uh, Tina Turner really, for me, rose to fame in the 80s and then in the 90s. It's when she basically reclaimed her career. That's when I knew of her. And then, um, because I was quite young in the 1980s, and then hearing about her and learning about her backstory. And it's just amazing. It's just so incredible how, uh, for me, she represents an individual, a female, who has this boundless passion for what she does, but also this strength, this enormous strength to overcome such struggle and abuse and adversity and to come in and basically, you know, own it basically. And she's held up with so much power, but power with grace. And I think for me, that's what really shone through with Tina Turner is that, uh, is that she didn't let her past define her and she moved forward with grace. Mm. And I was thinking, you know, these last few days, I've been trying to think of another person um, who comes close to that. And it's really hard, like in the media, in the entertainment mm. industry, it's really hard for me to think about anyone close to someone like Tina Turner who represented that for me. 
Uh, there's such beautiful things you just said there. And I echo what you said. And actually, I'm just considering how privileged I am to have Tina Turner as a media representation of the Black community in a positive way. And also how privileged I am to have in the work I do, the privilege of witnessing people all the time, overcoming their past, overcoming the traumas and moving forward in their lives because that's what I help them do. And so I get to see that happen a lot. And that's why I'm so passionate about it because selfishly, that's inspiring for me. I mean, I say selfishly, people think that everything they do is, you know, the selfless acts, but there isn't really selfless acts because you do everything has a purpose. You know, you help someone, it makes you feel good. And you like to keep helping people because it makes you feel good. You know, you help a old lady cross the road. You feel you you feel something from doing that. You don't get nothing out of it. It's not a neutral act. So I get to help people overcome trauma and past things that of holding them back and help them move forward. And to see someone so much in the media. It couldn't be a clearer metaphor, you know, the struggle. You can overcome anything. I know, right, people go, oh, yeah, but she's Tina Turner. Where did she come from? She didn't come from anything more than anybody else. It's just what she did. She took action. Yeah, that's it. And it's basically also, uh, well, not even basically, but I suppose with my thoughts, I was thinking about, we said actually only just yesterday, I was thinking about the younger generation where uh, they may not know a lot about Tina Turner because she may not have been in the spotlight. She was in her 80s when she passed and she didn't record any new material in the last few years. And so in terms of a younger generation, they may not know a lot about her, but we all know when we think about Tina Turner and the name and that, that reputation is that it's a little bit of shame because Tina Turner, yes, she's this amazing performer, amazing, talented singer. However, she'll forever be linked to the history of her domestic abuse, which is a real shame. And the younger generation, they may not, they may just see that, but they may not know the full story in terms of, she was born Anna Mae Bullock. She basically, um, she met Ike in this competition, singing competition, singing a karaoke night that she went to. Ike basically, yes, he took her on board and uh, and he basically um, made her the lead singer of his band. He gave her the name Tina Turner. But then it, it was Tina Turner. It was Anna Mae or Tina Turner, as she was known, the stage, her stage name. When she went on to, it was her hard work and her grit made all the success of all these records and during all those 15 years she basically was at the hands of domestic abuse of Ike and it was only until she was in her 40s where she ended up finding um, Buddhism the practice of, of Buddhism and meditation which then led her to or gave her the strength to decide to leave this abusive relationship and during that time I don't know if a lot of people know this but she was actually during that time, it was at a time when you didn't speak about domestic abuse, um, even in America, even in the Western society, and because it would have huge impact, not only on your family, but also your career. And Tina Turner actually went to a psychic and she asked a psychic, should I go public? Should I share my story on my domestic abuse? How will it impact my career? 
And the psychic told her that it will do, it, it will absolutely not do any hindrance. Definitely go forward and share your story because it could help others. She was so, Tina Turner was so busy, even when she got, had the opportunity and got that chance to then reclaim her career. Because before that, when she ended up divorcing Ike, you know, nowadays we see a lot of media celebrity couples and they go through the laws, courts of law, and Tina Turner didn't want to do that. And so she basically told Ike that you can take everything of the work that I made, that I did, as long as I get to keep my name. And so she stepped away with pretty much nothing. And during that time, she ended up sleeping on couches at friends' houses. She even basically kept herself going with food stamps. And then it was only when she was then rediscovered in this dingy little Californian uh, singing place and uh, by her manager, her new manager. And then he basically then helped her reclaim her fame. And it was just after that when she then finally came out with her story, with her history of what happened to her in, a, mm. in those last 20 years with Mike Turner. And at that time when she reclaimed her fame, she was in her mid-40s. Well, this is the thing about following your passion. This is the thing, you know, you can do it in your 40s and that's Tina Turner's an example right there. And there's so many examples of people re, you know, that haven't pursued their passion at younger ages and eventually... I don't know if it's maturity or whatever it is, or finding some form of spiritual awareness that they have later in life. And there's a lot to be said about happiness and success from doing that at whatever age. And that's just an example right there. Yeah, yeah. And and I know so she was actually interviewed by a Harvard Business Review, which is the article which I'm going to be reading from. And um, when she was actually asked, she was asked this question, when you confronted discrimination as a black woman, how did you respond? And um, Tina Turner responded by saying, I've always felt that superficial differences like skin color and social status shouldn't matter. In my view, any labels people use to separate us and them are illusions and delusions. I do my best to see people as individuals and emphasize common ground. This is also what my Buddhist faith teaches, that our essential identities as human beings are equally precious, regardless of differences. When I started as a solo artist, I was a female black singer in my 40s with no money and few prospects for gigs. Still, I kept a never give up spirit. I understood that although many people might have a limited view of me, I could help open their minds. Through hard work and determination, I showed all the naysayers that maybe their preconceived doubts were wrong. Part of my spiritual practice is to change poison into medicine, to take negative situations or roadblocks and transform or remove them through positivity. The force of my positivity pushed all the discriminatory isms standing in my way right out the window. Beautiful. Beautiful. Love it. Absolutely love those words. And she's right, you know. And I mean, for me, it's about your mindset. Other people's views of you can really hold you back. And to be fair, they do. So many. I'm, I'm one of them because I think it takes a, a spiritual um, maturity to be able to make those decisions and adapt your mindset in order to remain authentically positive. Because there's a whole thing out there in personal development. It's so think positive, think positive, and just think positive thoughts. But you can't, if you don't feel it, if you don't feel it deep down, if you haven't addressed the traumas, you can't, it's like 
your mind is misaligned with the rest of you, it doesn't work. So, yeah, there's like a missing link. You can't just think positive and everything's going to be okay. You have to really do the work. And she's obviously done the work with a, you know, a Buddhism. And I'm guessing there'll be more to it than just Buddhism. I'm sure she's done other things because she seemed quite open-minded. She's visiting psychics. So she's probably Mm -hmm. done a lot more than that to be able to get to a point where she's just persevered with grit. She's followed her passions. She's gone back to nothing. And never given up. And the means- yeah, it's, it's, it's often like that, but when you hit rock bottom or when you're t- completely stripped of who you think you know you are, and that's something that. Tina Turner obviously did. Um, not only, I think that journey for Tina, it sounds as though it started, it seems though it started, you know, it's when the abuse was happening. Mm. And in that abuse, she lost herself. And mm. it was in that, it's, it's the abuse that, because she lost herself, that's what kept her in that situation. But then looking inwards, looking into herself, gave her that strength to then build her identity back up and break out and say, no, I'm not accepting this anymore. And there is, this is not me. Yeah, there is exactly. another me. Yeah, and it's such a powerful. I remember with some. I read it in an interview, and I saw it in the film um, where Angela Bassett played uh, uh, Tina Turner in What's Love Got to Do with It. Is in that moment when she realizes this is not me. You know, I'm worth so much more, and she's in the middle of um, uh, a set, uh, a concert, and she's about to go on stage. But she's so badly battered from the hands of Ike where uh, she puts on the sunglasses to hide her bruises. Her head is so swollen that she can't put on a wig. And so she wraps her head up um, in a shawl and she basically hides out in the car park until she finds a moment and she runs across the road and find, and she's only got like 60 cents in her pocket and she runs into a motel. And basically she says to the hotel manager, I'm Tina Turner. I'm just about to play a concert, but I can't. Can you please help me? And if you help me, then I will never forget you. And it's, that was the moment. And it's just so powerful. It's mm. just so powerful. So, I, I have to go back and watch that movie now. I really do. Because I've forgotten all these parts. And I think it's just a power. It's going to be even more powerful. And, you know, I'd love, like, look how much time we spent talking about it. She's just an incredible thing. And we could talk forever. The only other thing I wanted to add, because this is a conversation I have, with all the coaches, with my mentors all the time, is what touching on what you said. Do we have to reach rock bottom? Do we have to have, why does it take so much pain to change? To And when I say to change, I mean to look within and do the work. Why does it take so much pain? And I think it's different for different people. And I'm one of the people where I had a level of pain, not the same as that, but it's not a competition. You know what I mean? Like, oh, my pain was worse or my trauma was worse. It's not a competition, but it still took pain that I experienced for me to be able to say, right, I'm going to make a change. I'm going to start doing this, doing something different. And so I have this question, why do we need, why is that the way it works? Why can't we just decide to to be always working on ourselves to avoid that? But I think, I don't know, maybe that's just how we have to learn and grow. I don't know. That's just a question that I have a lot. 
Yeah. And it's a great question, Tracy, because I'm going to ask you, Tracy, without putting you on the spot. So if somebody is going through, is at rock bottom or is going through dealing with and navigating through a trauma, which is obviously impacting their identity, how, if they reach out for coaching and training, what elements would help them? Yeah, what elements of coaching would help them? Why do you think coaching would be a, a very helpful tool for them? Well, two things. It depends on where they're at in that journey. So if they're at a place where they're not even functional, then it's out of scope for a coach, okay? A coach could still potentially work with them and their other support. So if they're seeing a psychologist or having counselling, it could work alongside those services if they're not functional. That's how I define the difference between someone that's ready for coaching and somebody who isn't. So it depends where they are. And then, and it depends on the type of coach because there's, different types of coaching styles and methodologies. And the traditional one is, you know, um, goal-driven, some mindset things to keep you motivated and working towards a goal. That's kind of high-level traditional coaching. And then what I would consider, what I do is transformation coaching. So that's inner work. It starts with the inner work. And it is always, all coaching is around moving forward to where you want to be, whether that's having more life fulfillment, more enjoyment, having a certain success milestones, whatever it is, that's always the overarching goal of coaching. But for transformation coaching, we know that there's things that's happened and most people have a level of trauma that are root causes to why you're having the life situation you have right now. So we work on the root cause. Yeah, we work on the root causes and there's lots of tools, evidence-based tools like hypnotherapy, NLP, matrix therapies. These are the ones I use to get to the root cause, get to the, the trauma reactions that you've had from the past and transform those so that you're essentially rewiring the brain and through these methodologies. That's what it does so that you can make better decisions, but it's, again, your actions will be different. Your thoughts will be different. And that's how transformation coaching works with the person that might have that situation. And now we're uh, really into it. So what were some more key things from the Tina Turner news? So the other thing that really struck me about this story, um, or this event that's happened in the last week with Tina Turner's passing is that, you know, upon reflection, um, what we've seen is that, or what we've reflected on also is that when Tina Turner reclaimed her life, it was in the 1980s, uh, mid-1980s. And during that time, uh, the music industry was dominated by people like Joe Cocker, David Bowie, uh, Mick Jagger. So all these male artists, uh, when it came to a bit like big powerhouse voices and reputations, and when it came to women, it was women in the 1980s, their voices were still basically being, um, it was all about uh, your tone and uh, the ballads, that type of thing. Whereas here was Tina Turner, and she had this raspy tone. It does have a raspy unique voice. Yeah, and it's quite unique. I mean, it's not yeah. a Celine Dion or Dell style, 
And so if you think about it, like you said, Tracy, before she's a trailblazer, she stepped into the musical world in, in the mid 1980s with that really raspy sounding voice. And she completely then owned it. She blew everyone out of the water. And so there's an article from Refinery29 and it really captures that moment. And it's very well written. It basically says, um, Turner's positionality in the musical landscape was unique. She existed in a reality of her own creation, a reality where she witnessed the erasure and appropriation of the black musical tradition created by her childhood idols. When she entered rock and roll in 1984, it was overseen by people not of her own, but she was a rocket. She was adamant for a place in a rock and roll tradition, unlike her years performing rhythm and blues with her then abusive husband. And it goes on to say, Turner wanted to reclaim the black musical tradition of in her own way. She used the same white musicians who stole from generations of black musicians to do it. Call it re reparations if you must, but Turner knew exactly how to carve an entry into the overly white male-dominated space of rock and roll. Decades of artistic theft and erasure distanced black musicians from a rock and roll tradition. While British rockers David Bowie and Joe Cocker hired black women vocalists to garner a stamp of authenticity to their musical productions, Turner waited. Tina Turner's voice emerged at a time where the tone was not read as feminine. Her inherent bonus, grittiness, aggressiveness and rugged vocal demeanor placed her in perfect alignment with the rockers of that time. Her grit and vocal tenacity not only empowered Turner to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the rockers of the era, but show them how it's done. It's often said Turner used rock, a genre that loved black sound, but not black people, to, di to distance herself from blackness. However, that could not be further than the truth. Her reclamation of rock and roll was a homage to the musicians like Richard, and in other words, Little Richard, who were pushed to the margins when white musicians came into the spotlight in the 1960s. Her positionality as the queen of rock and roll cemented black women as the originators of this tradition. Her career was the ratification of revolutionist music history, which proliferated throughout the music industry. Not only did she bring rock home, she became rock herself. Yeah, that's true. I forgot. I've, I watched yeah, so a movie about this um, where a lot of black singer-songwriters, their music was stolen. Um, so they go to music studios and sell their music for white performers um, because they weren't, they couldn't perform it themselves, not because they didn't have the talent, because they wasn't, they weren't included or weren't welcome to perform that style of music. It was seen as a white genre. So yeah, I've seen a few films talk about that or touch on that anyway but it's interesting Tina Turner managed to do it reclaim rock and roll I, I I'll be honest I'm not a massive rock and roll I like rock and roll it's not my favorite form of music and do you know what do you know what when I think of Tina Turner I think of Nutbush because it's a global dance it is it's a, it's, it's it's that one isn't it it's a it's like it's great oh do you know what you've just reminded me of something else this is a what would you do so is that let's roll in what would you do let's roll in the what's would you do i've got one for you you can have one for me right 
and, and then we'll just yeah we'll cap it off because we haven't got time to do the story what would you all right all right da, 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 da. what would you do do. All right, you go with yours. Uh, oh no, I'll go with mine because it's seen the time. Yeah, yeah, let's keep it teacher orientated. Okay, yes. this happened the other week. I'm in the lift. I get in the lift. I'm going to take Hendy for a walk, and there's a group of people in the lift, and it looks like you know a young couple with their parents, with their parents who are obviously all elderly, and they're all dressed up. And it's like, oh, hi, you all look really nice. Are you going anywhere nice? I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're going to go and see Tina Turner. You know, it's a musical out right now. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, great. That sounds amazing. And then when the it was the older gentleman that was speaking, like the dad, the father, and he had an accent and he was English. So I always pick up that because I always find that connection, yeah? So I'm like, oh, where is that accent from? And he's, oh, no, I said, you sound English. I'm from Lancashire. Where are you from? And he's like, oh, I'm from Yorkshire. And then he says, you poor lass. Like, you know, joking about me being from Lancashire because Yorkshire and Lancashire have this rivalry. Don't really. You know, who's better? You know, the War of the Roses. But anyway, that aside, that was like a jest. And then they're like, oh, yeah, I have to see Tina Turner. And he's like, you would be great. You're a great Tina Turner. You'd like look just like her or something like that. Just like you, you'd be great. You know, you could be exactly. You're looking at me going, really? Yes. Yes. What would you say? It's a strange one. It's, well, it's a double sided one. It's a double sided one, this one, I think, because on one hand, you could see it as a huge compliment because, you know, of the way you look, you know, um, amazing skin, amazing smile, amazing hair which is what Tina Turner is, you know, that's some of her trade points in terms of her looks. And so someone saying that, you know, you could play her or you could be similar to her, that's an amazing compliment. But at the same time, I suppose it's quite sad, really, because at the same time, yes, there is something along the lines of, are you just saying that because I'm because I'm black? You well, know? I think that because I don't look anything like Tina Turner. If people, you know, people... I get, I look like different black people all the time. Whitney Houston is another one. Diana Ross. I don't look anything like these people. They're all beautiful, beautiful skin, beautiful hair. But realistically, I really don't look like them. Um, If I, honestly, you know, some people do have like a bit of a doppelganger celebrity. They could actually be, you know, they could actually play that person in a movie and be semi-convincing. Me? No, not Tina Turner. So it's that kind of, Every black person looks the same yeah. thing that yeah. some white people have, not just white people, maybe other ethnicities that are not black. And that's the suggestion. And it's, it's, it's the implication. It's the implication. So it's like, well, what do you do? And I mean, this, I've had this all my life. Do you remember the show, TV show, Trisha? Yes. I would never put you in the same category as Trisha. I think because it's like face shape, um, hair. Trisha, didn't Trisha have more straight yeah but I did then back in the day yeah see I remember Trisha's having straight hair so I don't I wouldn't associate you with, with her any and also face shape and also features in well, terms of like I mentioned smile for example I have to say confession last night I was watching the Graham Norton show and they had a guest Fleur East yes and I remember seeing that last night and the way Fleur 
because Fleur Easter's got your shaped face, mm. the way her hair was, she had some braids on one side. And then I don't know how she's, because I've, I've rarely seen this, but with her hair, I don't know if she backcombed it or she had some kind of professional kind of, I don't know what she did with her hair. Mm. If she backcombed it or she bluffed it out in some way. But the way she textured her hair, it looked amazing. And I remember thinking, I wonder if Tracy could do that with her hair because the face shape of Fleur East, I was thinking Tracy's, like you would really suit that because your face shape was the same. It was like your smile was the same. It was like, I kind of like, I saw a lot of... I That's saw fine. Of, I know who you're talking about because I've seen that episode and it was on yeah. last night. And, and did you see the way her hair was? Yeah, it's amazing. She's got a and lot how- of hair. She's just got a lot of hair. It goes, it kind of does that thing itself when it's not hard to do when you've got a lot of hair. She's got way more hair than me. I was actually is the way you either texture the hair or there's a special way you backcomb it. But mm. I was kept on, I was actually mesmerized. But I, was like, I was actually thinking, how does she do that? How do you get that with her hair? It just looks amazing. I hadn't seen it. She's um, just got before. a lot of hair. Um, which is great, and that's why I really want to try and grow my hair so I can get that kind of look, you know. Anyway. Do you know what? I thought it was I thought it was some kind of special technique. No. It's a separate yeah. hair. But it's great. It's for me, it's so beautiful. Things you can do, but yeah, give more of it to get that kind of look. Yeah. I would say, yeah, I would say more Fleur East and less. And that's true. fine. I can see that. I can see similarities in how we look, but honestly, Tina Turner, different nose, different face shape, her hair different even so I think she had her hair relaxed anyway like straightened so nothing like her no resemblance whatsoever so that kind of comment and actually what I did I didn't do anything you know I don't want to ruin their high they're excited they're going out I just don't say anything and I I don't give a positive response or a negative response but maybe not saying anything is a negative response I don't know Maybe it's down to context because a lot of times, you know, that also happens, that's happened to me in terms of somebody saying, you know, oh, you look like, you know, if I'm going, I don't go to see Bollywood movies, but, you know, even if there's an Indian actress on TV, it's, you know, like, for example, the Jasmine De Palma, I think that's her name from Bendit Like Beckham, Jasmine De Palma, Jasmine De Nagra. Oh, I know who you mean. So Mm. it's, it's easy for, it's the most easiest thing to say in terms of oh you know that's who you remind me of because that's the only person that was on that's really been on tv uh you know in the 90s or you know in the early early nineties. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah. maybe but it's, it's an easiest thing and actually but... i could see a little resemblance with her that specific actress like if somebody said mindy carling no you don't look anything like mindy carling you know but i can see the resemblance of the other actress actually for you but you've just, you know, you highlight something else, a representation again, because bless this man who's probably thought he was giving me a compliment, but he wasn't because I don't see any resemblance for Tina Turner other than we have the same skin colour. But, you know, she's beautiful, she's gorgeous, she's amazing. So, okay, I can accept the intention there. But that's talks to representation because he does obviously doesn't see enough black people to be able to tell the difference between black people and that's obviously in his social circles which is fine but also in the media there's not enough um, representation for him to notice differences and you know and that's the thing and that's why we have it so when you get that question 
that's basically pointing out that problem. It's a situation which highlights, it's a reminder when we have these what would you do situations, it's that little reminder coming out again, highlighting that there isn't enough representation. Like I said in my answer, it's a compliment on one side, but on the other side, it's really sad that there's not enough representation of the Black community, the Indian community in the media. And yeah, so that's a, it's a double-edged sword. It is a bit. And um, yeah. we've got time. Let's do your, what would you do? Have we got time for another yeah, what would you do? Yeah. So what would you do moment? So I was recently in a new workplace situation where um, I had my induction. I was involved in induction. Uh, and during the induction, there was a small group of people and uh, we came out on the floor and we went past um, some current employees and we were introduced to this individual on the current work floor. And uh, she was a female of Indian origin and uh, who'd been working there for about a year. And as we went past, our manager pointed us out and said, oh, these, are, these will be uh, the new starters. And then this week I was um, taking on one of my work tasks and I was actually positioned right next to um, this uh, lady of Indian descent. And I was asking a lot of questions because it was my first time taking on this new work task. And so I was asking her, you know, what do you do here? What do I do here? What would you recommend for this task? Blah, blah, blah. And um, she turned around to me and she said to me, she said, oh, you have a lovely accent. Where is that accent from? And I said, oh, it's a British accent. I'm originally from the UK. And she responded by saying, oh, well, well, oh, um, well you're very lucky to have that accent. Um, when I first saw you last week, I didn't think that um, you would have that type of accent. Um, so you're very lucky to have that. And I wasn't quite sure how to respond to that because it was my first time uh, in this particular um, workplace scenario. And, you know, I wanted to connect with my coworkers, uh, my teammates. And so I didn't want to open up any conversation which maybe um, seemed to be defensive. Um, so what I basically did was just steer the conversation. I responded by saying, oh, I've been here 20 years and it's quite difficult to lose that English accent. And I steered the conversation into um, really finding out more about her background um, and where she was from. And, and yeah, and just settling that conversation there. But it, when I walked away from it, I stepped away from the conversation, it did make me think, have I just been in a what would you do moment? And I think I probably have. Like, what would you do when you're a new starter in a workplace setting? You obviously don't want to be causing any kind of, not friction, but really just inviting any risk of that. Um, but at the same time, you know, what would you do in response to that kind of comment? Well, I guess this is where we're different because, I mean, I say this, but I don't know if I really would. So, you know, in the lift situation, I didn't say anything to that man that made that compliment strike insult but what I think I would do and what I would suggest I mean that's the only thing I can tell you right right now because I haven't had that situation so I think I would be would have asked the curious question because I might be wrong because the implication there is that the implication is you don't have an Indian accent and that's why you're lucky that might not be the case. That's what I would think. I don't know if that's what you thought, but that's what I would think with that comment. So I would ask, oh, really? Oh, how so? What do you mean? Like, 
I will try to use as much tact as possible. So it doesn't come across as defensive, just curiosity, because you might be wrong or you might be right. I mean, you won't know until you kind of ask more, more about what she meant. It's like, oh, what do you mean? I mean, you mentioned before we recorded that she, did she have a German background? Yeah, yeah. I found out that she did have a German background. So um, what was her accent? So she's originally from the, the Indian subcontinent and she has an Indian uh, accent. But when I was finding out, where I came from a stance of curiosity, like you said, Tracy, and so when I started asking my questions to her, I, I ended up finding out that she has a background in Germany, German background. And so, um, and I think maybe what it was, because again, I was hesitant, was well, not hesitant, sorry, choice of words, I was careful about how I responded because it was my first time in that workplace. And so in comparison to the lift situation, where it literally lasts seven seconds or mm. 10 seconds, um, this is a situation which occurs in a workplace and it's your first time in the workplace. Yeah. And I think this probably comes up a lot. This is probably quite common because when you're entering into a workplace and people don't know about you, one of the first questions is, you know, oh, you know, where are you from? Or, you know, uh, that probably comes up with a lot of people from a minority background or somebody with different skin color. It mm. probably comes up, especially here, I found in my experiences in Australia. When I was working yeah. in London, I didn't get that where are you from question when I went into my workplace of environments. And I've done contract roles in both London and Sydney. In London, I rarely got the where are you from question. Mm. Whereas here in Sydney, when I'm contracting, I'm having that. That's one of the first questions I'm asked. And I probably get it asked nine out of 10 times. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the thing, though. You know, you're right. Workplace, you've got to build relationships with people because you're going to spend a lot of time with them. So, yeah, tact is definitely required. But, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with asking where people are from in the context of meeting them in a workplace situation um, out of a curiosity. But in the UK, for example, you know, you sound English when you open your mouth. You don't, so here, you don't sound Australian. So it's a natural question. Um, it is a natural question. However, I think here in Australia, there's, is, it's, it's, there's a fine line between where are you from and where are you really from? Exactly. So that's the difference. And, so I think this, and in this situation, the woman, I think what happened was it, she had great intentions. She's got great intentions. I think she was trying to ask, where are you really from? But how she, where she came from, the position where she came from and said, oh, I wasn't expecting that accent from you. That was her way, her roundabout way of asking, where are you really from? Probably. That question, where are you really from, gets asked nine out of 10 times when I've been in contract roles compared to when I've been in London. Well, yeah, well, there's two different questions there. Where are you really from is suggesting that you've already told them where you're from and they don't believe you because that's the only time I get that question because first I go, where are you from? And I'll be, oh, from the UK. And then it's, where are you really from? Because they don't want to know uh, where I was born and grew up. They want to know why I'm black. And that's a different question. That's interesting. I interpret that differently. That question, where are you really from, is for me, I interpret that as what's your background? What's your ethnic background? Well, that's what I mean. I thought that's what I just said. 
it's two different there's, there's two different questions where are you from in terms of where where have you been born and raised mm. and then there's where are you really from which I hear as what's your ethnic background well it depends on the, the context and the tone I know that's what people want to ask and, and we've said this on this podcast so many times that's then ask that question what's your ethnic background I don't get offended at all by that question I just think it's a curious question and I'm happy to tell you. I just get annoyed when people want to ask that question and they don't ask that question and it gets kind of like long-winded and frustrating because you can sense that that's not what they really want to know, um, but yet that's not what they're asking. And so it depends. How can we as a community start getting more comfortable or in our work communities, how can work communities get more comfortable with, and confident with simply asking just say what's your background and we've talked I've already talked about this extensively in another what would you do we talked about this workplace people we've talked about it for several times just say oh what's your background that's all you need to say unless you want to know where they're from unless you're asking a different question like because their accent's different and you, you suspect they're from the UK or you suspect they're from another country like raise there and that's what you ask but I've had actually had arguments with people like when they've asked me where are you from and I've said I'm from the UK like no no but where are you really from I know what they're asking but I've actually had arguments with people I was like well I'm from the UK because that's how I identify I was born there I was raised there so I identify as being from there and somebody's arguing with me basically saying let's let's just take that so how would you how would you in that situation of like where are you really from how would you help someone navigate gate around or even approach somebody and that conversation with somebody and say oh there's a different way of asking um have you tried asking it this way how would you approach that conversation what you mean like what do you mean am I giving advice or is this in the so, moment yeah, so like, how would you coach somebody around if, you, if they if you've just been asked that oh uh, where are you really from how would someone how would you coach someone around finding the confidence or to ask exactly like where are you about the person asking the question yeah yeah that's right so if you've just been asked a question rather than getting to that argument side of things Mm -hmm. um, then how would you coach someone around that conversation about how would you approach that conversation Mm -hmm. around about okay oh are you asking me this way or would you like to know where my ethnicity background is so you mean the person being asked the question how are the coach then is that what you're asking me yeah a person being asked the question again what I just said I mean depends on the context so if somebody says where are you from I would my automatic reactions is from the UK and that's the end of the conversation unless it gets to oh no where are you really from and then I'm like okay um, I'm really from the UK. This is what I would say. Um, but if you're asking me, what is my ethnicity and background? And then I'll tell them. And then I might also say, and, you know, if that's what you you really want to know, perhaps you might ask, just say, simply say, what's your background? When you're asking that question in the future. That's it. Yeah, but again, you know, what, I, what, I, what I might be inclined to do is, mm-hmm. or might be inclined to say, and I think I've actually done this one or two times, actually, is 
when I've been asked, where are you from? Where are you really from? Um, I actually say, oh, yeah, I'm from the UK. You know, it's an interesting one that you asked that because, you know, there's that difference between where you're born and raised and then what your ethnicity background is. And, you know, I suppose it's asking about the question, like, where are you from? Or, hey, what's your background? What's your ethnic background? I often ask, what's your ethnic background? You know, so that's, that's how I would approach it. Yeah. What's your ethnic background? What's your background? I would actually approach it with letting that person know, oh, I've been asked that question a few times. And often it's because people want to find out about my ethnic background. So, um, so yeah, hey, just ask, just, you know, I've been asked, what's your ethnic background? So, um, and there's that difference between ethnic background Mm. and where you're from. And so that's distinguishing the two, but also letting them know about the distinction between the two. Yeah, there is another way. If that's what they're asking, they might just be asking literally, where's your accent from? So, you know, it depends on the context of what yeah. the situation that you're in. Yeah. And they were too great. What would you do? Two for one. We don't normally do two. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's so it. well done. Thanks for that. All right, better wrap up. I think it's safe to say this episode's dedicated to Tina Turner. It is. That is the legend that is Tina Turner. Yes. The legend that is Tina Turner. Simply the best. Better than all the rest. All right, I won't go on. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right, then. Yeah. Okay, right. Wrap it up then. Oh, it's so good to chat to you. All right. I'll Till next time. Till next time. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you have as much fun with us today as we did. If what you heard resonated with you, don't forget to show the love and like our YouTube channel, All One with Tracy G. Give us a five-star rating on whichever podcast platform is lucky enough to have this episode because they rock too. Feel free to email stories or questions at alloneinclusive at gmail.com and sign up for my newsletter if updating yourself about everything which goes down sounds like something right up your alley at tracygandu.com. Until the next time, see ya!